Welcome to Science for the People, and Happy New Year, my wonderful science lovers. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a journalist at Science News and Society for Science. Usually, for our year-end science episodes, we look back on big science stories covering, say, the top five cool science things that happened this year. But for 2020, well, we know what the biggest science event of the year was. It's the thing that has kept some of us in our homes while others work around the clock, trying to keep us alive and as healthy as we can be. That's right. It's COVID-19. We could talk about how it's caused by the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. We could talk about how it's spread around the globe. And we could talk about various proven or unproven treatments. But most of that you probably know already. Instead, I've got a few questions that you might not have heard everywhere else. And here to answer them is Tina Say, senior writer and molecular biology reporter at Science News Magazine, who has been working overtime to bring you all the COVID-19 news you need to hear. Tina, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. So first I wanted to ask, when was the first time you heard about SARS-CoV-2 and what did you think? Well, the first time I heard about it was, uh, you know, December 31st last year, that there was some mysterious virus causing uh, cases of pneumonia in China. And I thought at that time, oh, it's probably another influenza virus. And then in January, they revealed that it was actually a coronavirus. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, but at that time, it really wasn't, they weren't, they didn't say that it was um, transmissible from person to person. And we didn't really have any idea of the the type of illness it could really cause. Uh, it, but we were only ignorant for, a week or two, maybe. <laughs> um, and, you know, by the end of January, there were reports of asymptomatic transmission. And that's, that's when someone is infected, but they don't have symptoms. Um, and that person who doesn't have symptoms is passing the virus on to other people. And that, to me, was really scary because that means it makes it really hard to track. You don't know who's infected right away. And, you know, that person could potentially come in contact with many other people and spread it really fast. And that seems to be a large part of what happened. And, you know, I noticed, I remember actually from that time, there was a lot of kind of bouncing around between asymptomatic transmission versus pre-symptomatic transmission. Do we, and, and how, and what percentage each was, you know, for a while it was like, oh no, 70% of cases are asymptomatic. And then it's like, well, no, it's probably more like 20% and the rest are pre-symptomatic. Do we know how much, how many people now are asymptomatic? Do we have like a harder number for that? Um, not really, because uh, to find asymptomatic cases requires really good contact tracing and testing, and that's not being done 
everywhere is certainly not being done to the extent that it needs to be in the United States. Also, we just don't have like universal testing where everybody goes and gets a COVID test once a week. So we really cannot gauge exactly how many people have been infected but don't show symptoms. Uh, What's very clear, though, is that people are infectious for – even if they don't have symptoms, and that includes people who never develop symptoms, and it also includes people who will later go on to develop symptoms. And was the asymptomatic transmission the first time that you were like, this is going to be a big deal? Was there a moment when a piece of news came out when you were like, this is the big one? Uh, Yeah, it was actually a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, the first documented case of what they called asymptomatic transmission, but was really pre-symptomatic transmission. Um, And that was, I think, January 29th or so. Was that the one in Germany? Yes, it was uh, a woman who had um, traveled from China to Germany Uh, She had actually been visited by her parents who were from Wuhan. Uh, So she got infected from her parents. Uh, They, I guess, did not know that they were infected either. Um, She didn't know she was infected. She went to Germany for a series of business meetings over the course of a couple of days. And while she was there, she infected one of her co-workers, for sure, who was in business meetings with her. And then he went on to, in fact, several other people. Um, and that that cluster was at a car parts company. Um, and there was a huge amount of data that came out of that cluster of cases, including that we now know that you're making infectious virus at least two days before you start to show symptoms. And then once you start to show symptoms, you're usually infectious for at least a week after that. And then uh, your antibodies and your immune system start to kick in. And you may still be, you may still test positive for the virus, but you're at that point not contagious to other people because you're not making the infectious virus particle that can that can pass the virus on and infect other people. Um, but you're still there's still RNA from the virus hanging around in your system. So speaking of RNA, we could talk about the terror, we could talk about the masks, we could talk about the social distancing and or failures thereof. But one of the most hopeful things for me during this pandemic has been watching the incredible pace of science throughout. And in fact, scientists had sequenced the virus itself. They knew the DNA sequence by January. They even had mRNA for a vaccine only a few days later. And that kind of gave us this shot of hope, we could beat this thing. And I was wondering, why did it take so long from that time that we had the mRNA sequence to having the vaccine that is rolling out now? It didn't take long at all. It is the 
fastest, uh, you know, from scratch vaccine ever made, ever. And, um, you know, these claims that it took so long and that we had the, the vaccine like within days, that's not really true. What we had were a bunch of pieces of mRNA, which uh, will go on to make protein. And in this case, um, pretty much all of the vaccines are targeting the spike protein. So that's those little knobs that you see uh, on the on any depiction that you've ever seen of the coronavirus. Uh, and that spike protein is what helps the coronavirus actually infect cells. So it's a, it's a really good target for a vaccine. So these mRNA vaccines, both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines, the two that are in the news because they just got emergency use authorization, they both are mRNA vaccines. So when you, but they're not just mRNA. You don't just take a syringe full of mRNA and shoot it in someone's arm. What happens is that if you, you could do that, but it wouldn't <laughs> do anything for you. I was going to say, you could do that if you wanted to do something very useless. <laughs> yes, because these are these little tiny pieces of mRNA and you, your body is full of mRNA because you make mRNA all the time for yourself to make all the proteins that you need to keep your body running. Um, and so what has to happen is that cells have to take in the mRNA and then they have to make the spike protein. And that spike protein is recognized by the immune system as being a foreign protein and something that it needs to build defenses against. So in order to get the mRNA into the cells, because they won't take it up by themselves, you have to put it in a delivery module. And these delivery modules are, they call them nanoparticles, but they're basically fats, lipids, and maybe some other proteins and other things that help stabilize the nanoparticles. So it's like, think of them as like little balls of fat that have mRNA inside. Like little and oil on oil droplet things. Like little around. oil yeah. droplets kind of, yeah. Um, and so those have to then, uh, you know, be stable to contain the mRNA and get it into the cells and then, you know, release it into the cells and then the cells will, will go from there. Um, and you know, that's, that's a tricky thing to do. Um, the Moderna, uh, had already had a MERS vaccine in the works. Um, MERS is also a coronavirus. Uh, it's the middle East respiratory syndrome. And you might have heard about this a few years ago because it was spreading in South Korea. They had a very big outbreak. 
one person ended up infecting more than a hundred other people uh, through a series of super spreading events. Um, and, you know, it was a big deal for a while in the Middle East. Um, and there are still ongoing cases of it. It's been something like eight years now that MERS has been around and Moderna has been testing their MERS vaccine. But the problem is that there are so few cases that it's really hard to tell whether your vaccine is actually protecting people or not. Um, so it's just, it's just taking a while to, to do the efficacy test. Um, with this virus, uh, unfortunately, we have a huge number of cases. And so the vaccine makers were able to tell very quickly that it is working at least to prevent people from becoming seriously ill um, with COVID. And this also, the MERS vaccine as well as the COVID vaccine are both using this same delivery module system? Yes. Um, they, Moderna at least, based their, um, their COVID vaccine on the MERS vaccine that they had previously um, been working on. Um, Pfizer and BioNTech, um, they, I, I think they were less far along in the nanoparticle division and um, their nanoparticle is not nearly as stable as Moderna's is. And that's why it has to be kept frozen really, really cold. Oh my goodness. I did not know that. <laughs> I knew that one needed to be the, the Pfizer one needed to be at, I think negative 80. Is that uh, right? Right. Yeah. Minus 70 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Get out your negative 80 freezers. Um, and uh, then but I know Moderna needed only what minus 10 or something. Uh, right. It's, it's, it's normal. It's, normal freezer temperature, which is minus 20 Celsius. Wow. And that explains it. And I think we should point out that, you know, we're, we're talking about these little particles that are used to kind of package the mRNA, but neither of us actually know what those particles really actually are because they're both under patent, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, they're trade secrets. We have a list of ingredients and they're like these huge long <laughs> names that I can't even begin to pronounce for you. Um, there's some detergents in there. There's some, you know, that, that are supposed to help stabilize things. Um, but mostly, yeah, it's lipids and salts and not much else. It's <laughs> mRNA. Could be in any configuration. Um, yeah. But I also feel like, hey, you know, there's a vaccine. And I, I remember I watched um, videos of like the first people to get the vaccine in England and the first people to get the vaccine in the United States. And I teared up a little. And many of us kind of saw the light at the end of the tunnel. And I was kind of wondering, how far away is that light? Um, are we going back to normal? What do you think 
2021 is going to look like. Well, there's still a very limited amount of these vaccines. They are working incredibly hard and incredibly fast to produce them. Because remember, in January, we did not know anything about this virus until uh, the sequence of it was released on January 10th. So we were halfway through January almost before we knew the face of our enemy. And, you know, these vaccine makers had to, they had to get it all together. They had to test it out in animals to make sure it was safe in animals. They had to test it in people to make sure it was safe in people. They had to test it to make sure it worked in people. And and usually that all happens and then you start ramping up your manufacturing. But they didn't do that. Because And normally you do it that way because if your vaccine doesn't work, you don't want to make a whole lot of it and then be out all that money. So all of these companies took the gamble and some of them were backed by um, places like uh, Cephi and Operation Warp Speed and other organizations that were supporting vaccine development. But from the very beginning, they started figuring out how can we actually make this vaccine? We don't know it's going to work, but we're going to go ahead and invest and ramp up our production so that, you know, by the time it gets tested and we know whether it works, we will have so many millions of doses to give out. So uh, Moderna says that they can deliver 20 million doses by the end of this year, which is great. But, you know, we have at least 23 million people in the um, healthcare industry. And we have another three or four million people who are in nursing homes, for instance. And then there are a lot of we have a lot of prisoners um, who are also at very high risk of of getting COVID. Uh, that's been very controversial whether to give it to prisoners um, before giving it to uh, the rest of the population. Yeah, but outbreaks in prisons have been really devastating. Yeah, um, absolutely. Every bit as devastating as like in um, nursing homes. Not not as many people have died because they do tend to be a younger population. But um, yeah, certainly a lot, a lot of prisoners have died. And I also wanted to talk about, you know, we've mentioned it's the fastest vaccine ever developed in the entire world ever. Um, and also they've been ramping up production just incredibly quickly trying to get this vaccine developed. The pandemic has done fascinating things to the scientific process. Um, it mobilized labs all over the world with academia and industry, and it's produced an honestly like literal fire hose of publications. <laughs> um, many because of which I saw recently that there's been something like 
50,000 papers published on COVID. That does not surprise me. (laughs) I know you and I get press releases every single day. Yes, many. Um, And many of them are actually preprints, which means they were released on the internet prior to peer review um, and are kind of open for public comment as preprints as they go through peer review. And I was actually wondering, how do you think COVID-19 has changed the way science is done and also the way that we report on it. Um, Because, you know, the preprints just, they never existed at this volume before. And we've never seen so much research on a single topic. Yeah. It's, it's been really amazing that pretty much all of science research um, shifted right away to tackle this problem. Um, People in all kinds of disciplines have shifted their lab work to study COVID. Uh, That was largely because if they weren't studying COVID, they weren't studying anything at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, Now I think that's that's changed somewhat, but still, uh, you know, people want to help. Scientists sort of naturally gravitate towards that. So, you know, there's just oodles and oodles of research papers coming out. Um, I have seen a big shift in lots of science being um, done through press releases. Uh, that's mainly companies who are announcing, uh, for instance, um, results from uh, drug trials or from vaccine trials, but also some academic institutions um, have done it that way. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of this big trial in the United Kingdom that found that the steroid dexamethasone was was really helpful in reducing deaths uh, among people who were on supplemental oxygen or who were intubated. The first we heard of that was through a press release while they were still writing up the results. It it wasn't even a preprint yet. And they wrote up the results for a preprint. And then I think a month or so later, maybe even longer, all of that data was then finally published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, And that's just, that would have been unheard of prior to this. Those scientists, I I mean, already many scientists were like, well, you know, I want to see the full data. I want to see the peer reviewed data. Uh, And, and so that is still very much, um, you know, in the, in the ethos of doing science, but we've already seen publishers saying in, I'm thinking particularly of the journal eLife that has said that they will not accept papers that have not been posted to preprint servers. So they've actually made this part of their their publication model because they want to see how other researchers are responding to this before you would have gone through the peer review process. So usually you'd have a panel of 
three or so reviewers. Curse you, reviewer number two. Curse you! (laughs) (laughs) For us, it was always reviewer number three. Oh, reviewer number two! (laughs) (laughs) So, So you would have this panel of reviewers who were generally people who were familiar with the field um, and who are often very prominent in the field. And they would say what they thought and they would suggest uh, that you might need more data on one thing or less data on something else. And um, then, you know, you'd make those changes and then it would get published. And then the rest of the scientific community would see it and they would say, oh, this is terrible. They they totally forgot to do this and they're making this conclusion and this data doesn't support it. And, um, you know, this is in direct contradiction to something else. And, you know, sometimes really deep and fundamental flaws in papers would be discovered after it was peer reviewed and published. So eLife and some other publishers are saying, okay, so we want there to be sort of this, this public review before we will accept it so that all of those potential flaws can be worked out before it is, you know, sort of set in stone in a scientific journal. So, so the preprint allows scientists to go in there and instead of, you know, cursing reviewers two or three, you can curse reviewer number 257. Exactly. And, <laughs> it's, all, and it's all public. These are public comments. Um, you know, on the preprint pages, it posts like everybody who has tweeted about it and and tagged this paper so you can see all of those comments you can see all of the pub peer comments and other sort of public review forums right there on it so you can see um you know everybody's criticism of it you can see how the authors responded um and elife still has peer reviewers but they are also making those peer review comments um, public and they're posting that on the preprint server as well. And how has kind of, I, you know, the pre preprints, you do end up seeing a lot of, you know, comments and, you know, Twitter threads, which are sometimes super juicy actually. Um, but I was, I was wondering in particular how this kind of science by press release has impacted the way that we do journalism about COVID-19 and about science in general? Well, you know, I never would have previously reported something, uh, you know, data that was only from a press release that you, you couldn't even see a preprint, you know, that, that you couldn't dig into the methods. Um, but things are moving so very quickly that even the preprint is sort of old news. Um, so people are reporting from press releases. And, you know, at least I always try to make very clear that this is a press release. This is the company putting their best face on what they found. Um, this has, you know, not been seen 
by other scientists. We don't know any of the potential um, shortfalls that they are choosing not to include in the press release. Um, it, it makes it really imperative that you are very clear about the source of the data that you are presenting for people. Well, Tina, thank you so much for working so hard to keep us all informed during COVID-19. It's a critical job. And thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you for having me. Next up, something else rocked the scientific world this year. Equality or rather, the lack thereof for people of color in science. Up next, we're going to talk about why Black Lives Matter in STEM, and how people of color are standing up for justice in science. I'm here with Deja Perkins, an urban ecologist at North Carolina State University and a co-founder of Black Birders Week. Deja, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited about this. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and kind of give the synopsis of what's what happened here. On May 25th of 2020, a birder named Christian Cooper was harassed by a white woman in New York City's Central Park. His crime, as far as anyone can tell, was looking at birds while black. This incident generated a lot of anger, but it also inspired you to help found Black Birders Week. I was kind of wondering, why did you end up kind of coming to the concept of Black Birders Week? So we came to the concept of Black Birders Week because after we all heard about the incident with Christian Cooper and we were talking about it amongst ourselves, we were very upset and started sharing our own experiences that we were having due to racism that we were experiencing um, while being Black in the outdoors. And we thought, hey, somebody else needs to hear about this. This isn't a you know, uncommon occurrence. This is something that this entire group of people who are all uh, Black outdoor enthusiasts, we were all scientists and all educators and or scientists in some way or the other. And we realized that we were all having similar experiences. But a lot of people seem to think that these experiences don't occur anymore, or that they're are not different experiences that people have while they are trying to enjoy the outdoors. And so we thought, why not share that with this online community that we have um, via Twitter and other social media platforms? And so not only did we want to share our experiences, but we also wanted to amplify other Black birders and Black outdoor enthusiasts and people who just, you know, are within the space. And we wanted to celebrate us and the knowledge that we have and just share our experiences with other individuals within the field. And I was wondering, you know, um, we say Black Birders Week, it was actually hashtag Black Birders Week, because it was a Twitter thing. Um, I was wondering, are there advantages and disadvantages to using Twitter um, for this kind of campaign? Um, were there other options that you considered? Or did you were you just like, we're going to use Twitter? I think it was mainly we're going to use Twitter. Um, I think the advantage of using a platform like Twitter and the advantage of having a hashtag is that it could spread more widely um, than any other platform that we were looking at. Um, and I think the disadvantage is that in my eyes, social media and Twitter is like a young people's game. And so I think that there might, we might not reach 
all of, you know, the people who are within the outdoor fields, we might be missing, you know, some people who are primarily on Facebook, we might miss people who don't use social media at all. But I think through our use of Twitter and the other social media platforms, I think we were able to expand our reach of this campaign. I don't think that we were really, we didn't have this goal of reaching, you know, a global platform, but we did because of Twitter, we're able to, you know, connect with people in some parts of Africa. We were able to connect with people in New Zealand and Britain and just people all over the world and who are able to share their experiences of being um, Black in the outdoor space. And also, you know, as opposed to, for example, Facebook, Facebook is kind of a closed community. Um, you can't it's not as easy to share conversations. You can't have open communities, but Twitter is much more kind of open and public. And so the tweets ended up embedded in articles, um, which yeah. might've helped increase the reach a little bit. Most definitely just the way that the Twitter platform has set up the capabilities to, to retweet and to quote tweets and being able to just like and share and even like and share to other platforms has really helped us to be able to expand our reach and allow us to really create this virtual conversation. Um, and of course, the response was massive. And if anyone listening has not seen hashtag Black Birders Week, go look. There are many amazing birds, um, extra, extra special, fantastic birds, um, to be seen on the hashtag. And what I was especially impressed by is not only did a lot of people participate in Black Birders Week, but other people who were Black in science, Black in STEM, people of color in science, technology, engineering, and medicine, they started having their own weeks. And so now there is Black in neuroscience, Black in science communication, Black in microbiology. I was kind of wondering, what do you feel is kind of the biggest accomplishment um, so far uh, from all of these campaigns? You know, that's a really good question. Um, number one, I think the fact that we have the visibility and we actually had all of these different campaigns that people were starting to organize and, you know, build their own platforms to bring attention to the issues within their respective fields. I think that that is one huge accomplishment. Um, and it just really kind of reiterated the experiences that we were all having across the scientific field. You know, it wasn't just something that's exclusive to voters or exclusive to a neuroscientist or people who are mammologists. We saw, you know, the experiences that people had across the science field and how it actually connects to our everyday lived experiences and how it, it connects to the type of science that we produce and the biases that we, um, and some of the biases that we have within, within science and how it impacts people's lived experiences, you know, anything from, you know, the way that black people are not um, black people or black women, especially, are not taken serious when it comes to medical concerns. Um, I think there was a lot of um, a lot of information about that during uh, Black Neuroscience Week. Um, if we think about the experiences that black people have in the outdoors when trying to recreate, or when people having access to nature and the ability to recreate, um, and even just having access to these fields, I think the black in whatever weeks, they were all really helpful to this one common goal of increasing Black representation and visibility within STEM, as well as um, 
just bringing attention to our collective issues. I think that these collective weeks, they really help to build partnerships, um, which help to actually increase um, our visibility. And, and I think many people throughout the different weeks, they started to create partnerships with different organizations in order to actually bring in more representation and bring in uh, more diverse perspectives um, to the various STEM fields. Yeah, I kind of wanted to elaborate on that a little bit. You know, there... 2020 had a lot going on. Um, <laughs> in uh, in particular, there were a lot of racist incidents in the United States, and the incidents were not new, um, but the public outcry over them was more intense. And that particularly included kind of the outcry against issues of racism in STEM. And you mentioned that a lot of these weeks kind of helped solidify the fact that a lot of these issues that people of color face in STEM, in academia, they're very common to people of color in academia. It's not just birders or neuroscientists or science communicators. Um, and I was kind of wondering, uh, can you elaborate on those experiences that I think possibly a lot of white people might not see or consider? Yes, of course. And I do want to, I guess, address one part of your statement there, because um, I think a lot of times people try to bunch, you know, all persons of color together in that one term, you know, per- people of color. But the truth is the um, the black experience in the United States is much different than a lot of other, you know, people of color's experience within the United States because of the history that we actually um, have and the way that our people were treated Um on top of that, you know, then there's the colorism that exists within the different ethnicities and the way that, um, you know, light-skinned people, whether they're uh, lighter-skinned black people, lighter-skinned Hispanic people, lighter-skinned uh, people of Asian or Indian descent, all of those, um, that colorism that's present means that we all kind of get treated differently um, based on the darkness or the blackness and the melanin, the amount of melanin that we have in our skin, um, meaning that we get fewer opportunities to uh, be represented in the media, no matter if that's through entertainment or, you know, being a representative for the outdoor community or just having the publicity of different issues in the science that we're working on. Um, there is a difference between, you know, the black experience in America and, you know, just people of color in general in America. Um, we all have our struggles, but I just think that, um, the experience of black people is just a little bit different. Um, for example, I tell people all the time that I, I had an experience while I was collecting field work um, as, you know, a master's student in a wildlife biology program where I was going to this newly developed neighborhood in Durham, North Carolina, and I was going out and surveying birds. I was looking through my binoculars and writing down all the birds that I was seeing. And this particular location that I was surveying from was on the sidewalk in front of someone's home. And this was early in the morning, probably around like 8.30. And I had an Asian woman come outside and ask me what I was doing. And I told her, had on my Triangle Bird Count t-shirt, 
and I had um, all of the flyers for our project. And she still told me that she felt uncomfortable with me with my binoculars in front of her home. And so I had to relocate my survey point to another location, um, which was I just moved across the street to um, they had like a public pond within development. And so I moved over to that trail. Um, but then 10 minutes later, she came outside with her dog and, you know, followed me over to, you know, the, the walking area and stood far enough away that she wouldn't disturb me. But I could tell that she was watching me and it was meant to be an intimidating pres- a presence. And I think that a lot of times when I tell this story, people automatically assume that, when I talked about the woman, that it was a white woman, but in fact, it was an Asian woman. And it just goes to show you that, you know, just because you are a person of color does not mean that you are exempt from having um, racist tendencies or being discriminatory towards another minority. That is absolutely true. I am so sorry that that happened to you. And it, yeah, I'm so sorry. That's awful. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's incidences like these um, that are pretty common for um, African-American and the African-Americans in the outdoors, you know, and of course, like other um, people of color within the outdoors um, have experiences like this as well. But I can only, you know, talk to the black experience since I am black. Um, but we often have issues of, you know, being harassed in the outdoors, you know, while we're recreating, um, such as the incident with Christian Cooper or, you know, being harassed while we are completing research. I've had friends um, tell me that, you know, while they're doing roadside surveys, picking up dead animals with their proper permits, they've had, you know, the police pull up to them and question them and just really um, having this harassing presence. I've had friends working in Missouri and um, having people pull guns on them while they're collecting research or, you know, just having people walk up to you while you're outdoors, maybe birding or hiking or just recreating and telling you that you don't belong here or what are you doing here and just being suspicious of your presence when the fact is, you know, we've been in these spaces. We've always been a part of the outdoors. Um, We have a history being part of the outdoors. I mean, our hands were used to build this country. And, you know, even during those Jim Crow days, we enjoyed the outdoors. We just had to enjoy them separately because we had, you know, those state parks with, you know, the colored only entrances or the colored only parks or the colored only pools. So the, the fact of the matter is that we've always been recreating and enjoying the outdoors. We've always been farming and hunting and doing all of these things. It's just that we've had to do them separately. And people have never looked at us as a voice of authority within this space. And I think it's high time that people realize that we are within the outdoors. We are within STEM and, and, you know, we have every right to be here and we shouldn't have to validate our existence anymore. And I think it also says something that, you know, as a result, for example, of that woman's harassment, you had to move your site. It impacted your science. Um, and you mentioned yeah. several, uh, several other incidents of other colleagues who have, you know, been impacted as they're trying to do science. And they're not allowed to yeah. do the science that they need to do. Exactly. Um, at, yeah, I think that's, that's just awful. Um, but 
I think it's really awesome that Black Birders Week did so well and you've raised so much awareness. Um, just not just through Black Birders Week. Um, you also work on, uh, the Twitter feed Black AF and STEM, um, and the other weeks. And I was actually wondering, do you think those weeks will persist? Are you planning on doing another one next year? Well, we are definitely planning on doing another um, Black Birders Week. We have um, Black Herpers Week coming up soon as well. I think that will occur in May. And then Black Birders Week will be during the same week um, as it was last year um, this time around. And so we really hope that it continues to be a yearly thing. And we hope to build out more partnerships so that we can broaden our reach and really start engaging people with birds and the outdoors um, on a broader scale. Hopefully this time in person, if COVID lets us, you know, if COVID lets us be great. And um, you mentioned that you've made a lot of partnerships and, you know, you've met a lot of people. This Black Birders Week went absolutely viral. It was a huge phenomenon. What has it been like for you personally as one of the co-founders? Has it been positive, negative, both? Um, It's been a little bit of both, but mostly positive. So um, because of Black Birders Week, I was able to connect with a lot more scientists um, via Twitter. Um, I was able to build friendships, but then I was also able to present my research, which also deals with um, equity within ecology and um, biases in data collection. And I was able to share that research to, I think, at least 10 different audiences um, throughout you know, the rest of 2020. And I will say that the majority of those presentations have been paid, which is a huge shift um, because typically people ask me to present for free, but it takes a lot of time and effort to actually um, take time out of your day to prepare a presentation, um, especially one that you really want to engage people in and really leave an impact on people. And so I think that's one of like the hugest um, impacts that happened to me. Um, I was able to receive 15 pairs of binoculars to lead bird walks um, in Raleigh because of the um, free binoculars for Black Birders campaign. Um, so now I can engage more um, students in bird walks. Um, I'll be starting a partnership in March with the city of Raleigh. Um, park system, and I'll be leading um, bird walks um, for Dorothea Dix Park, which will be phenomenal. And um, Black Ants and STEM as an organization, we have developed a partnership with the National Wildlife Federation, and we are helping them with their safe outdoor spaces um, initiative and helping them with the panels and really creating more conversations about how do we create a safe outdoor places um, for people who are interested in recreating in the outdoors. That's wonderful. I love that you got binoculars and opportunities to lead bird walks. I was wondering, do you know that Black Birders Week has inspired anyone to take up birding? Have you heard from people? Yes, I've heard from a ton of people um, just across different generations who are like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. You know, I want to give birding a try. What are some binoculars that I can use? Or um, I've heard from people who are, you know, close to the triangle area of North Carolina reach out to me and say, hey, could we go birding together? You know, I really want to try this out. I think it would be a lot of fun. Um, I've actually... Um, 
I taught a class this uh, past fall uh, with Duke Garden um, about the natural history of birth and, you know, helping people to get into birding. And so through that, I just had people just had their eyes open and realize like so many birds that come to their backyards and getting them thinking about what they need to do to make their backyards a better habitat for birds. And really that is, you know, so heartwarming for me because I love seeing the spark, you know, within people. I love having people send me videos on Instagram and Twitter about the birds that they're seeing to their backyards or the changes that they're making within their own yards to attract more wildlife and, you know, getting people excited about, oh my God, I saw, you know, this, this woodpecker or this sparrow or this hawk and just getting people to realize and appreciate the birds that are in their neighborhoods, that just fills me with so much joy. I couldn't ask for anything else um, from Black Birders Week, honestly. And I have been wondering, um, I am sure, in fact, I know that you've been doing interviews about Black Birders Week and Black AF and STEM. You've been doing interviews left, right and center. What is kind of one thing that has happened this year surrounding Black people in STEM that no one has really asked you about? What aspects do you think have been ignored? I'll, I'll answer it in reverse. Um, I, I think I'll start with the things that I've seen people do and then have that lead into the things that people don't do. Um, and so I have seen a lot more organizations wanting to have this conversation, um, but there's only so much talking we can do about, you know, the experience and what happened and, you know, oh, how do we make it better? I think what's lacking is um, what I'm not seeing is people take that extra step to actually implement change and actually, you know, create these new programs that would, you know, bridge the gap and make science in the outdoors more accessible and, you know, giving these free programs to, you know, low-income minority communities, rural communities, communities that may not have access um, to STEM. So I'm not, I'm not seeing the, the actual change happen yet. Um, and I know change takes a long time, you know, things weren't built in a day and it, it's going to take a long time to dismantle these systems. But frankly, um, I, what I don't want to happen is I don't want, you know, Black Birders Week and these talks of justice and equity within the outdoors and science to just be a hot topic and hot term of the summer. I want it to be this long-term battle and initiative where people are constantly working towards, you know, actually implementing the change within their organizations. I don't want it to just be a conversation and talk. I want it to actually lead to some type of programming, some type of policy change, um, something that's actually going to make a difference. And I also finally wanted to ask you, you're a birder. What was your biggest yeah. sighting this year? Oh, um, my most exciting um, sighting this year was um, sandhill cranes. And these are some of my favorite birds. They're these huge, tall, um, like brown birds with this red like cap um, or crest on the top of their heads. 
And I actually saw them in um, a, a resident, like a suburban backyard, um, it, right off of like a really busy street. I was coming um, back from picking up some pizza while I was here in Chicago and headed to my dad's house. And I just remember um, looking, catching a glimpse of this something brownish out the side of my eye and I'm like hmm that kind of looks like a sandhill crane and I hadn't seen one in years the first one I had seen was in Minnesota and ever since then I was like wow I really 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 want to see another sandhill crane and so I pulled off into um, this little um, development uh, housing development and I kind of ran down the sidewalk and approached slowly and you know, they're in this field on the side of a house, literally in someone's backyard with these two sandhill cranes that were probably migrating through uh, during fall migration. And it was just amazing. I was, you know, super excited, trying not to, you know, let my party out and keep my party inside and just my excitement because I didn't want to scare them away. But it was just, amazing to not only see the sandhill cranes but to see them in such a developed part of the city um and just somewhere that no one would really expect to see these really tall birds um that were you know almost taller than me and you know all these people were just driving down the side of the road and passing them by and nobody else saw this saw this miracle that i was seeing it and it was just amazing oh that is so cool and they're they're endangered right Sandhill uh, no, Sandhill. I don't think so. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, different crane. Um, is there a number one bird on your bucket list that you haven't seen yet? Oh, there, there are so many birds that I haven't seen yet. I have not been out west at all. Um, so all of the western species, um, humming, especially the western hummingbirds, I would really love to see. Um, but I mean, there's just so many that I can't even. I can't even name one. I mean, when everything opens back up, I would really love to go to the Rio Grande um, Bird Festival if it's happening next year. That would be great, you know, to just go and experience the diversity of birds to have down there and just go and meet people. Uh, it would be, that would be on my bucket list. Oh, that's awesome. I can understand exactly how hard it is to keep the party inside. If I saw like an amazing bird, I'd probably want to say something, but you can't say anything because they'll run. <laughs> right, exactly. It, it, I've heard someone say, you know, as soon as you try and, you know, get your binoculars on a bird and you focus too much energy on a bird, that's when they fly away. And it, it, it really is true. Like, when, when I know it's hard because we're always so excited to see these beautiful birds, but, you know, as soon as you focus too much energy on a thing, it kind of just slips away from your grasp. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's, it's a hard thing because birds, you know, they are wild and they cooperate when they want to, but it's, it's a great time when they actually cooperate and you're able to see something amazing. Well, thank you so much, Deja, for your time and your tireless work, um, both in urban ecology and to promote diversity in STEM. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to learn more about Deja Perkins, Black Birders Week, Black AF in STEM, and Deja's many other projects, because she does a lot, we've got links for you at scienceforthepeople.ca. Finally, yes, COVID-19 loomed over us all. In the United States, racism loomed very large. Underneath it all, something has been bubbling along, and that something is climate change. Rochelle, take it over. 
At the beginning of 2020, the growing threat of climate change was poised to take center stage in science news. And then a global pandemic happened, which very quickly took over news cycle after news cycle, in particular the science news cycles. But while we've been locked down and hyper aware of pandemic news, 2020 has not been a good year for climate change. With me is Carolyn Gramling, Earth and Climate Writer at Science News, here to talk us through some of the important climate news you might have missed this year. Carolyn, welcome back to Science for the People. Hi, great to be here. So the the first thing I wanted to talk about is more directly related to the pandemic as well as climate news, because as people around the world, in particular the westernized world, were enduring their first few weeks of pandemic lockdown, we kind of began to see stories emerging about the immediate noticeable impact in things like noise pollution and CO2 emissions. Can you talk us through a little bit of that news? Yes, of course. Um, yeah, it was very dramatic, actually. Um, so, you know, of course, the, the lockdowns began, um, stay-at-home orders began in, in China first and then started to spread around the globe. And the greatest number of them all seemed to coincide around early April. And that is also when we saw this really dramatic drop in um, carbon dioxide emissions uh, globally. So I think, it, I don't remember the exact number, I think it was something like 17 to 20% drop compared with the same time last year. Um, so that was, you know, it was very dramatic. And there was, there was a lot of, you know, <laughs> there were a lot of questions about what does this mean for, you know, are we on the right track? Is, is this a silver lining to the pandemic? Um, and we also saw a, you know, a big drop in what they call seismic noise, which is the, the kinds of sounds that um, human activities make, you know, just rumbling of trucks, but also, you know, the pounding of, uh, you know, various kinds of large machinery on roads or, you know, off, offshore. Um, there was a lot of, there was a sudden hush. <laughs> so we knew that, you know, we could see this difference in human activities. But the real question is, what does that actually mean for our climate crisis? And I think that's something that people are still trying to sort out, but they are starting to, they do have a few preliminary uh, thoughts on this, on this matter. What are some of the preliminary thoughts that we, that people have come out with so far? Well, the first one is the CO2 news. You know, I think uh, there was recently a study that, that looked at um, how big the drop was for the year. So in April, we had the biggest drop, but then the, the drop in CO2 emissions this year, I think it was something like between four and seven percent compared with 2019. That's that's how how many fewer emissions of CO2 we had, um, and that, you know, it's it's the largest drop we've seen in a while. But the bad news is, um, CO2 stays in the atmosphere for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, and we would need to have a sustained drop like what we saw in April that lasted for far longer to actually make any kind of a dent. So the, you know, the takeaway as far as CO2 emissions is we, you know, we haven't, the pandemic didn't solve the crisis. You know, it's not a silver lining. There's the the human misery of, of the pandemic in no way is mitigated by its impact on, on CO2 emissions. So even though in the short term, we saw a very large decrease Long term, mm -hmm. you know, I'm making some assumptions about crossing our fingers. Hopefully, the <laughs> pandemic will resolve itself in 2021, at least a little bit. Um, but it sounds like there's not a huge long term impact expected from that short term sort of dive. Um, yeah. 
so specifically with respect to CO2, now there are other things that also dropped, other pollutants that also dropped. I can, I can speak about those in a sec. But um, when it comes to the CO2, yeah, we don't know what the long-term impact will be. We're already starting to climb back up to where we were last year. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's very likely that there will be various kinds of economic stimulus efforts on the part of countries to get their themselves back on their feet. And that could, you know, quickly increase emissions once again. Um, so right now, the big drops are due to transportation. So aviation and cars, primarily. I was thinking um, uh, airplanes, the air industry yeah. has been, uh, I think the word is decimated. Yeah. Um, so I like would assume there's been a big drop. impact there. Definitely. Um, and yeah, and cars, there's still far fewer cars on the road than there were uh, this time last year. But that's, you know, it's coming back. So this is this is a blip. Um, but, you know, I think there are people who are hoping that we might take some lessons away from this. You know, we can see if we do have this dramatic kind of a drop, maybe this can tell us something about how we can rethink commuting in the future and that sort of, you know, big picture transportation of the future kind of takeaway. Um, I will say there, you know, one of the other things that I've found kind of interesting about all this is it, in addition to the CO2 story, there is also a pollution story, an air pollution story. You know, we had all we saw those photos of like, look, LA is so like clear and blue skies, mm -hmm. um, but we didn't really know, you know, what what is the actual impact of COVID? Like, how do you suss out how much of that is COVID versus weather patterns? And um, I think people are still trying to get a grip on that. But one thing that has been emerging um, is that a lot of cities were measuring during the lockdowns changes in NOx emissions, so nitrogen oxides, mm -hmm. um, which are a precursor to ozone, smog. And they did find that those dropped dramatically as a result of reduced transportation. And you also saw in some cities, like in New York, a corresponding drop in ozone during the summer. So that, you know, that does tell us something about this complicated chemistry of pollution in cities. So, you know, it was like a big natural experiment in a way. Yeah. And definitely for me, one of the biggest takeaways reading through some of the news there and hearing about it was, is how huge the changes need to be in order to get this thing under control. This, the, how, if the pandemic can't do it, like, I think I was surprised to hear that the drop was only like 17 to 20%, given how many people were locked down. I think I found that surprising and a little bit daunting, especially given the severity of the lockdown at that time and how many different countries mm -hmm. were locked down. And definitely my takeaway is this is not something this is going to sound a little bit um, not negative, but I don't know that this is something we can just science our way out of, which I think a lot of people <laughs> hoped for that we could, you know, ingenuity ourselves throughout the other side of this climate problem. There is yeah. going to need to be a dramatic and intense lifestyle change yes. by yes. nearly everybody who lives on this planet yes. in order to make this happen. And that I mean, is a really yeah. hard problem. I mean, for perspective, I think so. I said, you know, I think there was something like maybe up to 7%, 7.5% drop in CO2 this year compared with last year. We would need to see a similar drop, annual drop, uh, over the next decade in order to, like, stay on track with, with um, the, you know, the, the, the targets that we have set for ourselves from, like, the Paris Agreement to try and, and reduce our emissions 
to, you know, I think it was, I think this is for the un, well under two degrees warming. Um, so, you know, without a pandemic every year, I mean, we can't rely on something like that. We don't want to rely on something like that, obviously. So yes, we need to make dramatic lifestyle changes. The other thing that, you know, you note correctly is that transportation didn't get us there very well. You know, it didn't, it didn't, it was part of the thing, mm-hmm. but people are still using power in their homes, right? Mm-hmm. They were just at home instead of in a business. So that that's the power companies, you know, are a huge part of those emissions. And that is where a lot of the real systemic change would need to happen to really see a dent. Yeah. And if we think just purely about transportation, which we acknowledge isn't enough, people mm-hmm. are, are just like, as soon as people can get back to their normal life, <laughs> they broadly will. So yeah. The pushback on some of the changes that are required is just, it's difficult to conceive of for me. And I think this is one of those times when it's just been made very plain in mm-hmm. a way that's, that you can't kind of hypothetical your way through. It's like, but look, we have some numbers now on what this will take in a very real, like lived experience way. And it's not cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that is one of the big takeaways is that, like, yes, it, it created a very stark picture, like, this is what it would, would have to happen. So what are you prepared to do? You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, <laughs> on, <laughs> on, that, Michael, cheerful on note. that cheerful note. Um, so as the earth and climate writer at Science News, you've probably been watching the climate news way closer than most of us given 2020. So in your opinion, what do you think is the most important climate story of the year? Oh, wow. That's a really, really good question. I mean, in a way, I would say it's the one we were just talking about, which mm-hmm. is that, it, you know, putting these numbers on this and sort of giving people this like real world view of like, what would it take to do what we we know we need to do? Um, I think that is that probably is the top story of the year. <laughs> but there were also all these, you know, sort of visual effects, visible effects, you know, powerful effects of climate change um, that were going on. And I I think the wildfires, you know, when it comes to these extreme events, I feel like that those took center stage, not just in the U.S., but also in Australia. Um, It it was just really stunning. (laughs) And I think, you know, kind of gripping it, it, it brings it home to people in a way that I think is the other side of that coin of making it real to people like that's people need to know this is this is climate change in action. Yeah, especially, um, I mean, the Australia ones were happening in 2019. So that's a story that spanned two years, really, uh, in our artificial way of counting years. Um, but in California, as well, the wildfires there come after a year of wildfires, which came after a year of wildfires. (laughs) So it's been not just this year, it's just been another year that was worse than the year before, like all the years previous have been another year worse than the year before. And in particular, this year, I mean, combined with everything else, it made it more rough. But I think the thing about the wildfires in particular in California is Every time they're there, there's a real human cost um, in a way that we don't we, – we see from things like hurricanes sometimes, but something about wildfires, I think particularly in, the, in North America at least, are scarier than hurricanes. 
Yeah. I mean, I will say, yeah, the, the visuals are pretty intense. I mean, as far as like getting that message out to people, it's really, it's hard to look away. Um, yeah, but the hurricanes were also really awful. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was quite a year for, for all these kinds of things. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the people have been doing this, this work in California, you know, in terms of both the heat and the dryness, you know, it, it's hard to say that these particular wildfires or a particular fire was sparked by climate change you can't say that but you can say you know the stage was set the it was primed right <laughs> by the dryness the extreme dryness and the and extreme heat and that's only going to get worse and you know every year we're going to be seeing these kinds of dramatic scenes so yeah it's pretty gripping for sure um I also want to talk a little bit about the heat wave in Siberia, because I think this is probably something that most people have missed. As stories go, it didn't have a huge impact in what we think of as the kind of westernized European North American world. Um, and I think this one for a lot of people probably slipped under the radar, but this is actually very significant climate news. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the one, the one piece of information about that that may have slipped out into the consciousness was this, you know, record-breaking temperature in um, this one little town, which I can attempt to say, I think it was Ver Verkiovinsk. I'm not saying it correctly. But anyway, it was this one town that had this, I think it was about a 38 degrees Celsius, which is something like 100 degrees Fahrenheit in Siberia, which is, whoa. Um, and when I, when I started talking to some researchers about it, you know, one thing that they mentioned was like, well, there may have been records like this before. This one was just recorded. Mm. Um, but it's, you know, it's also part of a, a trend. And it's part of this, it's part of a trend overall over years. But it's also part of this like six month long heat wave that was gripping Siberia. It lasted from January through June. Um, and it was unprecedented. And people who investigated like, what is the climate link to this, the climate change link found that not only, you know, at a a very conservative estimate of how likely it is to have occurred under climate change was, you know, it's about 600 times more likely as a result of, you know, human emissions and greenhouse gases, but probably as much as like 99,000 times more likely. Like, in other words, it would not have happened without human caused climate change. Um, so it seems very stark. Like this is, <laughs> this is a very powerful impact that we are having on this planet. And every time we hear about this kind of record temperature setting, especially in the warm numbers that far north, there's, uh, I think, a larger cause for concern for those of us who watch to those areas. As a, as a uh, Canadian, I'm aware of the news coming out of um, the north parts of our country, the ice melting. Uh, I know that part of the concern about this heat wave in Siberia is the loss of uh, permafrost, melting and, and sagging permafrost, which is a big problem. Can you talk us a little bit a little bit about why things like melting permafrost up in the north is such a big deal. Like it, why this is not just a heat wave. It has some bigger ramifications than maybe heat waves in other places. Yeah. I mean, one of the big things about that is that the melting, melting of the permafrost, you know, an earlier spring thaw, it dries things out. And we have also seen unprecedented wildfires in that region as well. And that's a large, a large part of the reason why the heat and the dryness, just like farther south, are, are leading to these, you know, fires raging across different parts of the Arctic. Um, so that is one of the big issues. Um, I think, you know, the other thing that was sort of got a lot of people's attention was there was this um, 
oil facility that had a, a huge spill. And there's a lot of debate about whether melting permafrost or sagging permafrost in which this facility was anchored might have led to that spill. Um, but, you know, it does sort of highlight that there are, you know, there are facilities that are, you know, <laughs> that, that, that are like underpinned by this um by this terrain and and this kind of uh, you know impact it changes everything it changes everything that they're built upon as well um yeah and that earlier spring thaw also has other kinds of impacts as far as you know changing vegetation changing um wildlife um it you know it it basically creates a whole new ecosystem regime up there and if we flip the planet over and look at the other pole, <laughs> things have not been that much cheerier down in the Antarctic. Uh, right. I remember reading a little bit about um, the discovery of warm water channels melting one of the glaciers down there. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so the there's a there's a five year project that's been going on. It's on hiatus this year due to the coronavirus, but um, it's a joint UK US project to study Thwaites Glacier in West Antarctica, which is one of the fastest melting glaciers. It's about the size of Florida, um, but it's also people are very concerned because as you as you melt some of these glaciers, they are they are helping to you know hold back the ice sheet to slow the the the, uh, the melting and the and the sliding of the ice sheet into the ocean. So, you know, melting these glaciers rapidly can can really destabilize the system. Um, and, you know, we're aware that they are melting from above, but, and from below. Uh, and that's one of the things that people have been most concerned about is like, how is the ocean water accessing the underbelly of these glaciers? And they found there are these channels that can like go right up underneath it and start to eat away at it from below. And that speeds along the process. Any other key news stories that you wanted to highlight in terms of climate or things to maybe watch for 2021? I mean, you know, just to return to the hurricanes for a second, I think one of the things that was really interesting about the hurricane season was there was a lot of focus on the number of storms. Um, and we can't really pin that one on climate change, um, at least not directly. Um, but what it has been shown to have more of a link to climate change. It, it, we know we know that warm ocean waters can do a lot of different things. They can they can add rainfall. They can make storms bigger, stormier, more intense. Um, and this year, what we saw were I think ten of the storms in the season underwent what we call uh, what they call rapid intensification, where within a span of twenty four hours, they they increased their wind speeds dramatically and became these monsters. Um, and that is something that is linked to climate change and is probably something we will we can expect to see more of um and it's something that i think people are very are very concerned about huh well not a lot of good <laughs> news on that front i'm afraid yeah, yeah. <laughs> well carolyn so be of cheer <laughs> i yeah i am very glad that even though we've all been hyper focused on another science news story. And in some ways, you could say it's been a banner year for science news, and science journalism. Um, I am glad that there are people like you out there who are continuing to work these beats and watch this and try and raise awareness of it, because it is uh, just a huge problem. And we've had a big awakening as to how difficult collective work towards a single goal can be. So mm -hmm. more of that we're going to have in front of us, but we need to start that work. Indeed we do. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining thank me today. You. Really appreciate it. It was my pleasure.
And if you want to catch up on some of the climate news you missed in 2020, check out our show notes for links to Carolyn Gramling's articles relating to some of the things we've talked about today. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 